Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. We are recording this on March 4th, 2020. I'm Anna Garcia and joining me today is civil rights lawyer Ronnie Kay. Everyone else calls you Ron, but considering that we went to school together, we should probably tell everyone that. <laughs> we have to we have to disclose all, all, all potential bias. I think so. So uh, Ron Kay is a civil rights attorney who specializes in criminal justice cases, not just uh, murders and exoneration cases. But I, I think, you know, from the time that I've known you, you've really specialized in these either wrongful imprisonments or this abuse of um, police force is another specialty of yours? Yeah. Um, well, I do many different types of cases, essentially holding police officers and prosecutors accountable for violating the law, for engaging in uh, uh, manipulation of evidence. But my, but I, I think if I had a, a specialty, it would be representing people who have lost decades of their life in custody based on uh, efforts by law enforcement to hide evidence, to present fabricated evidence, and to essentially set them up for a criminal conviction. They ultimately are exonerated in a habeas petition, and then I sue the agency um, for damages for the lost time that they spent. And you get multi-million dollar settlements. My clients do. <laughs> okay. Now, um, we've been talking a little bit on the side. We can't say much, but you have a Netflix special that's going to be coming out soon. I know you can't really talk much about it, but it's based on one of your cases. Well, it, it, it's it, it's not quite that true that it's my Netflix special, but it's, the, it's an entire two-episode, two-hour documentary about my client's exoneration and I am interviewed. And in fact, it's very, very, uh, 
fortunate that we videotaped my deposition of the primary bad cop. And uh, based on that, we ultimately were able to settle the case. And the video footage of my deposition is repeatedly used during the documentary. So it's it's quite quite fun to see my actual in in, in the state of cross-examination be brought out. So, yes, it's coming out, I think, in April. All right. That's terrific. We wish you a lot of luck with that one. I can't wait to see you. That should be fun, huh? Yeah. We have two cases that we're going to look at this week, Ron. One, uh, the stepmother of a missing 11-year-old Colorado boy named Gannon Stauk has been arrested. She was arrested this week, and she's been charged with his murder. But there's an interesting twist here. He hasn't been found yet. His body has not been found. But first, we're going to go to another case. This is a case of a woman in Idaho who has been charged with killing her husband by drugging him after she claimed that he fell off a boat and drowned. But she is accused of killing him by giving him excessive amounts of Benadryl, which is what you take when you have an allergy. So this is the case of Lori Barnes Eisenberg. She's 66. She was arrested this week on first-degree murder charges in the 2018 death of her husband, Larry Eisenberg, 68. Lori originally told the police that her husband wanted to go on an early morning boat ride to see the sunrise. This was the day before Valentine's Day, so this would have been February 13th, 2018, two years ago, and that they were going on this very romantic morning boat ride, and that's when everything else happened. That's when she starts describing how he ended up falling into the water. She goes on and on and describes that, you know, he hadn't been feeling well, that um, there was an issue when he went to get up on the boat. She said he didn't look right, like he couldn't focus, and that he fell into the water. And then in her attempts to try and save him, she tripped over a heater. She hit her head and then claimed that she couldn't see him anymore. And so then she drove around in the boat until there was no gas left in the boat. Then she finally finds her husband's cell phone wedged somewhere in the boat and finally calls the authorities. But by the time the authorities get there, he's dead. They can't find him. Oh, he has disappeared somewhere in that lake. So when you have a wife telling a story like this, Ron, do you do the police automatically believe that that's what happened? I mean, he is missing. She's on the lake and he didn't appear anywhere else. So, you know, this was. Well, I mean, do the police believe the the surviving spouse who is the actual recipient witness of what occurred? I mean, generally, police don't believe much. They come in with pre-existing uh, uh, suspicions and, you know, you know, and oftentimes for good reason and perhaps in this case for very good reason. But, uh, I mean, you know, what what's very common is that there is a well, – there's a hardening of the categories or something to that effect, meaning that the police are very, very uh, much – suspicious and have uh, hunches that someone actually is not telling the truth, which could often be based on very legitimate perception and, and, and contradictions, or it could be based on just, you know, like voodoo, essentially. So, Well, until the body appeared, and the body finally did appear, like it would have been a few weeks later, and the body floated up and it was called in. So then police uh, sent it to the coroner, the medical examiners, and that's when they found the toxic levels of Benadryl. 
And they also determined that the cause of death was not drowning, was not drowning, meaning he was already dead by the time he hit the water. So some details start to emerge both about Larry, who we presume is dead, even though we haven't found him yet, and also about his wife. So a friend reveals that he had received a text message from Larry on the morning of the 13th. So that would have been the same day of the boating accident. And Larry mentioned that he wasn't feeling well. He thought maybe he was having a little bit of flu and also mentioned in the text that he may have had a mini stroke. So he he told the police that earlier in the week, Lori, his wife, had said the same thing during a conversation. But when he spoke with Larry after that conversation, again, Larry didn't mention anything about not feeling well. And what's really bizarre, and this may be really minor, but the friend said the response from the text messages to Larry included a little emoji. And he said, Larry doesn't use emojis. So that makes me think, could someone else have been responding on these text messages as a setup for Larry maybe not feeling well? Well, ultimately, we don't know the identity of the person who actually wrote or drafted the text message. And it sounds like, I mean, if you're, if you're, if we're, we're moving toward the nefarious plot, it sounds like the, that Lori could have in fact been the person setting up a consistent story with the friend to ultimately justify her, her explanation later down the road. So it seems very, if this is in fact what happened, it seems very premeditated to me. But there's more. Okay. There's always a pesky will in the middle of everything when someone dies suspiciously. So Larry had a will. But when the will was pulled, when he died in this boating accident, there were handwritten notes, handwritten changes made to this will. And there was a big change in the will where before most of the money was going to Larry's children. Now, in the handwritten notes of this revised will, 80% of Larry's estate was going to his wife's children. They were her children from a previous marriage. They were not his kids, and they'd only been married a few years, these two. Yeah. So do you find that suspicious, Counselor? Well, in murder cases in particular, critical to the prosecution is to find a motive. Motive, uh, it, uh, oftentimes the defense will point, po- try to poke holes in the evidence saying there's just no justification. Why would he, he or she commit this terrible, egregious act, potentially completely uh, alien to his normal law-abiding conduct? But in this case, the motive seems to be pretty transparent. We have uh, a, and we see, I think, from reading some of the materials that Lori had other uh, potential illegal conduct or uh, in which she was trying to enhance the financial well-being of her children. It, let me put it this way, Mr. Attorney. Basically, she was charged with trying to steal money and did steal money from a charity, a nonprofit that she worked for. So this is all like happening you know, kind of at the same time. So the changes to Larry's will were made in January of 2018. That is one month before his boating accident. But then two weeks after this deadly boating trip, Lori gets charged with embezzlement, 
She allegedly embezzled $500,000 from a nonprofit that she worked for, the North Idaho Housing Coalition. Prosecutors revealed that Lori began stealing about $16,000 a month back in 2015 with the help of several of her adult daughters. Let's not forget, these are the same adult daughters, apparently, who are about to benefit from the change in the will at the last minute. She does something very bizarre here, though. She sends an email to the Housing Coalition the day after Larry disappeared. Okay, this is before she is arrested. She sends an email and she says, I know you think I am hiding something, but not I am not going to give you my computer. He said she continues on. She says that once we get through Larry's memorial, then I will meet with you. I'll tell you everything that I did. I'll show you everything I did. I can I can pay back whatever money as soon as possible. As soon as I sell the house, Um, she's. She admits in writing, she says, quote, I am a horrible person. Please, please, please don't punish Larry's family and his memory with this now. So she's basically using, you know, poor Larry's death here as an excuse to get them to back off and have some sympathy. Well, that really didn't work because what ends up happening is that she didn't repay the money. She skipped out on the arraignment. (laughs) She disappears for weeks. And then, of course, the judge issues a bench warrant. So then in January 19, this is a year after poor Larry died, she now pleads guilty to three counts of wire fraud and is sentenced to five years in federal prison for embezzling from the nonprofit. And four of her daughters pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit wire fraud. (laughs) And they were helping their mother. So it's just it's such a tangled web here between her charges for embezzlement, the suspicious death of her husband, and now she's been charged with his murder. But what the police have not said is how she gave him the Benadryl, how much Benadryl, and what condition he was in, and how she got him in the lake in the first place. Mm. Well, knowing, uh, seeing Lori's conduct, I bet you there's some some very uh, probative things on this computer. Um, and I mean, who knows what her, what her, uh, her, her, if you looked at her search history, what would be found with regard to trying to understand what would be a surreptitious way of potentially poisoning someone and which in, in potentially could be seen as legitimate due to a, some kind of illness. So do you think that that's the reason she didn't want to give over the computer, that it was going to reveal something about her husband's death rather than the charges that she was facing right then and on embezzlement? I mean, you can't, all I can say is there's an inference and the inference that where if she says, say, you know, she's trying to justify her failure to, to disclose her computer. And we all know that the computer is a treasure trove of potentially incriminating evidence. And then she tries to use her failure to give the computer as a further justification of her grieving for her husband by saying, you know, uh, trying to show some genuine concern uh, about Larry and his memory. So, you know, the point that I'm making is we look at, this is a very damaging set of facts. I think this Lori person is clearly in, in trouble. And, but ultimately nobody really knows what happened. It's all based on inference, unless you have something like an eyewitness who saw something or there's some DNA or some kind of forensic analysis that's going to be dispositive. But right here, I mean, with regard to a 
prosecution case for murder, it looks pretty strong, regardless of whether we're able to actually understand the sequence of events that led to Larry's death. So I would be very, um, I'd be very eager probably if I was Lori's attorney to try to engage in some serious, uh, serious plea bargaining um, in, in order to try some kind of mitigation because this does not look like a case that will be very successful at trial from the, the, the limited facts that we know. Okay. The next case is the disappearance of 11-year-old Gannon Stauk. He disappeared on January 27th in Colorado Springs. This 11-year-old was a fifth grader. His stepmother said that he was last seen somewhere between 3.15 and 4 o'clock that afternoon leaving the family home because he was going to go visit a friend. Sometime around 7 p.m., the stepmother, Letitia Stauk, she calls the police and says that her son is missing. But what's interesting is that the police first call this a runaway. That's how they describe what happened to Gannon. And it it took a few days until it changed from a runaway situation. He's just 11 years old, Ron. Right? Yeah. Until it turned into a missing persons case. Because the boy, it turns out, has to take medication. And they thought between... The cold weather in Colorado, the fact that no one had heard from him and that he's supposed to be taking daily medication. And I'm also thinking some of the story was not adding up about what the stepmother was saying, that this quickly changed from a runaway situation to a missing child, a possible abduction. You know, we just we don't know. So everyone starts searching. The FBI is brought in. The state authorities are brought in and they start looking for this sweet little 11-year-old who, when he was born, was just a little over a pound. Mm. And he, he, they didn't even think he was going to make it. So um, the, the details of this get very confusing. <laughs> it, it, it really is because, again, starts at a runaway. Two days later, it, it changes in classification to missing or endangered person. His father... Gannon's father was in Oklahoma at the time. He was in training. He's active duty Army National Guard there in Colorado. So he is not home. The boy is being taken care of by his stepmother, Letitia. So, um, of course, everyone starts searching. And the story takes on a life of its own in social media because it's almost as if everyone starts coming after the stepmother, which is very interesting when there's almost like a groundswell in the community that goes after the stepmother. It was very unusual. I mean, horrible things were being said about her. And she started doing all these interviews, uh, trying to set the record straight because he had been missing for five weeks. And in this time period, um, a lot of horrible things had been said about her. So what I find really interesting is that she would make these incredibly long public statements, almost as if to not only attack her attackers, but try, it sounds almost like setting up an alibi, mm-hmm. because she starts, uh, these are just some, some excerpts of her statements, which I find very unusual, and I think it's very important. She starts talking about how social media has been so devastating to her and devastating to her family and how she wants, 
you know, her stepson, Gannon, to come back as soon as possible. She starts giving these interesting details. She talks about how Gannon, she says, quote, was helping me unload in the garage and cut his foot because there are a lot of tools because Albert, that would be her husband and the boy's father, does a lot of woodworking. Now, my head, I see a red flag and I think, you're trying to set up an explanation for why someone might find blood in their garage. That's what I'm thinking. Uh, she goes on to say that he sat on the edge of the car. We bandaged it up and he was good to go. So she also makes a very strong point in this letter. She says that he kept checking the gate because he's the only one who has the key to the gate. In the boy? The boy. And how proud he is that he has the key to the gate. So she starts putting all these things out publicly that kind of have everyone going in different directions. She also starts asking neighbors to start thinking back if they saw any suspicious cars because he was probably abducted. Mm-hmm. And and what's interesting is that the police then, the sheriff's department issues a statement and says, no, we don't consider this an abduction case. So, so this is all unfolding over the five weeks where the boy is missing. Then one of the neighbors decides to check all of his video surveillance cameras. And he had, he really was trying to get to see what he could possibly see. And he hit bingo. Like you can't imagine. He actually on his surveillance, this is the neighbor. He was able to show her leaving in the morning, the stepmother leaving with Gannon in the morning and then coming back to the house early afternoon in the same pickup truck, but there was no Gannon. And remember, her story clearly was that he was home and had walked out of the house, had walked out of the house and gone to the neighbors. Mm -hmm. So that changed everything, that piece of video, because it basically proved that if you look at the video, it doesn't add up with her story because Mm -hmm. she never came back with him. The last time anyone saw that little boy alive was about 10 Mm a.m. And she claims at 3 p.m. he walked out the door to go to a friend's house. And no one did ever find this friend, which I always found very suspicious. So what she does is she makes a statement about the video. She accuses the the authorities of leaking this video. I don't think it was really leaked. The, The neighbor gave it to everybody, including the media. She actually puts out an incredible statement. She says, quote, Please don't think for a second that there isn't enough of technology to determine shadows and movement around the truck. So she's claiming he's there. You just don't see him. But this is the best part. She says, there's also proof from my phone that we had taken a selfie in the truck in our driveway and it was time stamped. She said that that selfie was taken and then sent to the father because she always does that when he's out of town. Do you find that interesting or do you think that that is an alibi? Well, did, did did they produce the selfie with the timestamp? She just referred to it. Well, I mean, this is a investigator and a prosecutor's dream. You you have actually no clear evidence at all, and you have this potential suspect. But in the beginning, you know, who knew? Who knew what her relationship would be to this to this purported crime? And she stupidly made this vast statement in uh, social media and, and, and essentially got caught up in these terrible contradictions. 
And it was just a great piece of investigative investigative luck and and hard work to get the surveillance camera. That I think is is the you know critical when you find a dramatic contradiction like that. That's just a, a nail in the coffin. That's really going to be exploited by the prosecution. Letitia, the stepmother, also made a comment, which I think is very telling. She said, quote, I took care of Gannon for the last two years in our home because his mother didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. This is before she's even arrested. Well, she's trying to, to present evidence that this would be so absurd to ever accuse her of engaging in such a, such a dramatic nefarious plot of of killing her stepson so she's she's essentially but this case and the other are really ugly cases because they're they're they don't seem to be anything linked to passion or just someone just losing it these are premeditated apparently from the facts i see planned out murders and for uh, and this this suspect now she's a defendant her motive is seems very very absurd. I mean, where is she going to in order to retaliate against the actual boy's mother? I mean, it's a very strange case. But Well, she even adds, this is again before she was charged and we're going to get into the charges. She even adds, she makes it clear that she, she says, quote, I'm going to be so ecstatic when I am able to say to people that you should really sincerely apologize to me for everything that you have said about me. Right. She kept saying, when Gannon comes back, you're all going to have to apologize to me for all the nasty things you've said. Instead, what ends up happening this week on March 2nd, she gets arrested for first degree murder. Has anyone uh, done any kind of psychiatric assessment of this person? Not anything that has been released, although there, you know, there are a lot of inconsistencies in her professional background where she says she worked one place and then the place says, no, she didn't work here. So, you know, that that doesn't necessarily mean anything about your mental stability. Yeah. But there there are some interesting pieces in her background that that don't really add up. So on March 2nd, that's Monday, the El Paso County Sheriff's Department announces that they have arrested Letitia Stauk in South Carolina. She, her husband, and her extended family are all from there. What is unclear is when did she leave Colorado? The boy's been missing for five weeks, and why was she somewhere else? So we don't we don't have any details on why she was there, but she was arrested by the Myrtle Beach police. Letitia is being charged with first-degree murder of a child under 12 in a position of trust, child abuse resulting in death, tampering with a deceased body, and tampering with evidence. When the El Paso County Sheriff's Department made their announcement this week, they not only shocked everyone that the stepmother is the one who's being held responsible, but they also are clearly saying they don't believe that Gannon is alive. They have already given up hope that he's alive. In fact, the police are certain he's dead, but they haven't found his body. They did say that they believe they've narrowed the area in which they think his body may be, but I don't know what that is based on. Mm. So, Ron, how do you prosecute a case without a body? 
was, I mean, it, it's, this isn't the first time, um, because people have, you know, the corpus, the corpus has been disappeared or, or actually been destroyed or burnt in other murder cases. Um, at the end of the day, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence and the, whether a jury will be able to embrace that the person, the, the child actually was murdered remains to be seen, but. Well, if they, if the authorities say that they are certain he is dead, there must be some evidence that they are basing that on. They haven't found the body, but they say they're narrowing down where they think the body could be. So you're, you, what, you're, what you're suggesting is there's evidence that we don't know about. Yes. Yeah, that essentially gives them confidence that the body, that, that first of all, he's killed, that he hasn't been abducted, that he's not imprisoned somewhere. And that there's a, and what seems to dovetail with that is there's a location. So from what I read and what I've heard from you, I don't know. And, uh, but if law enforcement is making that bold of a statement, my intuition is they have something. They have something that says he's actually, uh, he's actually dead that they, 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 and, and you know, they had to have meet some, you know, threshold standard for, to be able to, to to issue such charges. It's not like they can just willy-nilly say he's dead because just because he's gone doesn't mean he's dead. He could be abducted. He could be a well, runaway. No, here, so here's what the El Paso County Sheriff's Lieutenant said during this press conference. Quote, we do not believe Gannon is alive. Our work is only just beginning as we continue our relentless pursuit of justice for Gannon and his family. He added that the investigation could take several more weeks to several more months, and the affidavit was sealed. Mm. So we don't know right. what was in there. And I'm sure that that is certainly on purpose. This press conference this week was just so emotional because you saw all of the people who were heading this investigation mm. with their voices cracking and there were tears the photo we're looking at now, that is Gannon's biological mother. And she was just beside herself. And the gentleman you see there um, with the tracksuit on, that is Gannon's biological father. And the two divorced a few years ago. It's unbelievable. The FBI, a lead investigator on this case, he was so emotional. He said, quote, all the evidence points to foul play. And... You know, everything that they they just kept saying he's definitely dead and there's foul play and that she is the one who has killed him. Uh, the the mother, the biological mother, was just so emotional. Um, she actually said something about the stepmother. She said, I never thought that I'd be standing here. It is a nightmare. And she said, this person, the stepmom that I even trusted, she will pay 100% for this heinous thing that she has done. Mm, terrible. And the father, the father looked at the video himself. He went to the neighbor's house to look at the video. This is before the arrest was announced. And according to the neighbor who had the video and provided it to him, he said, quote, he just broke down crying and said, she lied. She lied about the time he didn't go to a friend's house. Honestly, I believe it was the videotape that changed this entire case. Oh, absolutely. That, I mean, she is, um, the, the stepwife is making 
statement after statement, you know, trying to provide some context for his disappearance and that she had no no relation to it, to it, to it. And then, boom! Once once she has essentially been fully contradicted by the video evidence, she becomes the primary suspect. I mean that that seems to be to be self evident. The I'm, father the father also made a statement at this. Well, he provided a written statement. He did not speak himself. And this is what the statement is. He said, quote, the person who committed this heinous, horrible crime is one that I gave more to than anyone else on this planet. And that this is a burden that I will carry with me for a very long time. It's such a betrayal on so many levels. It's it's a it profoundly so I, I mean, you know, first of all, we have to. We don't have definitive definitive evidence that he ha- is dead. We don't have definitive evidence. But the authorities are saying that he is dead. Well, so I they mean, know something we don't. Well, I'd like to see what was under uh, in that sealed affidavit. I mean, presumably they sealed the affidavit because there's potentially a co-conspirator, and and that they're, they're engaged in some investigation that they don't want to release uh, release any kind of. Indicia, indicia of uh, of evidence and put some money uh, on notice, but a lot about this case suggests that this is this woman was so a sociopath. I mean, this doesn't necessarily because the motive is so crazy here, and and to kill a child with, with, when the husband, the father, and the father of the child is gone is so, such a heinous crime. It's hard to understand why this heck occurred. So I think it would be very fruitful to know what her, her her psychological background is, and for her to portray herself in such a you know emphatic way in, in on social media also is very telling. I don't know what's going on here, but this this is a uh, a suspect that I think there's a lot of chapters, there's a lot of layers that are is not is not known from the the facts that you've disclosed. She is so hated. She's been getting she was getting death threats before she was arrested. She's been getting even more now that she's been arrested. So the details of her extradition from South Carolina to Colorado is being kept secret because they're actually afraid that someone is going to try and do something. That's how disliked this woman is. I that this has no bearing on guilt or innocence. I'm just simply saying that that's how emotional a case this is. A, a killing of a child, the abduction of a child. And I mean, it's one of, if not the most um, heinous crimes in our society. And uh, and particularly when it's from an, a, a position of trust. So, I mean, I, I, I appreciate the fact that the authorities are not disclosing information that could potentially put her safety in jeopardy because you just don't want vigilante justice to happen. I mean, she deserves to have her due process rights um, uh, addressed, and we'll see what happens. But this is a tale that I would just love to be a fly, you know, a fly on the wall and watch the forensic psychiatrist talk to this lady, because there's a lot going on here that we don't know. You did ask a little bit about her history. She does have a previous criminal record, Uh, She was arrested three times in 2001. So something was going on in 2001. And this all happened in North Carolina. In February of 2001, she was arrested um, for communicating threats in April 2001 for simple assault. And then in June 
for unauthorized use of a motor vehicle, which sounds like a stolen car to me, but I guess they call it something else depending on the severity of it. So something was going on in 2001. Well, I mean, I'm going to put my public defender hat on. And first of all, this is quite attenuated from 2001. It's 19 years ago. I would not start characterizing three arrests in 2001 that did not, first of all, if this was a criminal case, you wouldn't be able to use these whatsoever. They would be absolutely excluded from evidence. And, you know, there's a lot of bad evidence here. And this, this, this would be a case that I think, um, first of all, the crime is so heinous, it has to be pursued with, with full force by the prosecution. Secondly, there seems to be some, some, some very interesting evidence that would support a finding of guilt against this, this defendant. We don't need to necessarily throw out 2001 arrests in North Carolina that didn't result in convictions. But, I mean, for a, for a podcast about, about a, a particular crime, it is an interesting thing that in this quick uh, winter spring of 2001, she's arrested three times. I just don't think it's necessarily compelling about any kind of criminal motive or criminal lifestyle. We're just putting it in there to give everybody a little bit of context into who she might be. Okay. Okay. So we're going to move on. We're moving on now to the comments section. This week, we have police looking for a woman who scammed the Girl Scouts. She was using fake $100 bills in Redondo Beach, which is a beach community here in California. Police are searching for a woman who scammed them. They, the kids were selling their cookies and they were outside of a supermarket in Redondo Beach. And then the troop finally realized that they had been given some counterfeit money. So what she ended up doing was she gave them $100 bills, right, that, that were fake. Then she got her boxes of cookies, plus she got change. <laughs> so she actually got real cash for her fake money. But the photo that you're looking at, that was captured by the supermarket surveillance photos. So I really hope that she is caught because I'm very upset with what she's done. I just don't like it when you when, you know, kids are out there trying to sell their cookies for a for a good reason. And they're trying to be socially responsible and do something about their community. And here comes along a criminal who's going to steal their freaking cookies and give them counterfeit money. And I am not alone in my feelings here, Ron. Vanna M. writes, I'd avoid this from happening by buying a counterfeit detector pen. Can't trust anybody, especially with money. People are that messed up to steal from kids. Brandy K. writes, $5 a box is a bit (laughs) steep. Okay, that may be true. I thought it was even more than $5. But if people don't like the price, simply don't buy. My daughter is in Girl Scouts, and I would hope that this would never happen to her and her fellow Girl Scouts. Karen N. writes, this is just not right to do children this way. I hope that she gets caught. I'm with you, Karen. I'm really angry at this woman for stealing from children and trying to do a, a good deed. Absolutely. <laughs> and you? You have no problem with this? No, no. You should be outraged, Ron. Well, how, how uh, by way of, if, if the audience could see me, they'd see how steamed I was in the they color. They can. There are cameras here. Oh, I don't okay. see any steam. <laughs> I mean, well, of course, who could who could support such conduct? I mean, uh, outrage, of course. And I, I mean, this this type of predatory conduct has to be punished. And I think that these these people, I find it most interesting 
that the 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 comment by the uh, by Brandy K is is my favorite because of course everyone is in in agreement it's a terrible thing to do but she did say five dollars a box is a bit steep so there's a little comedy in this in the, these comments. All but, right, the next one is so creepy I can't believe this. A Florida hospital employee has been arrested for allegedly sucking the toes of elderly patients. This mm. is just so disgusting. I'm getting upset. I'm wiggling my toes in my boots. I'm so upset. A Florida hospital worker was arrested after a patient allegedly caught him sucking on their toes. Um, His name is Franz Belderin, 23 years old. And Franz was charged with battery on a person 65 years older. So apparently the woman was sleeping, wakes up, and she finds him on his knees and she feels something between her toes. So that would have been his tongue. It just is so horrible. You can't you can't make this stuff up. No, and apparently, you know, he's done that before and to others. So Jody J writes, I absolutely hate my feet touched. <laughs> and this has me freaked <laughs> the hell out. Yeah, I would not want my feet touched. Um Andrea E writes, waking up to that and seeing it is a bad dream that came to life. And Coral P writes, I get it that this is wrong, so wrong, but dude obviously has some serious issues. Charges may not be the best option. Yes, he mm. may need some serious therapy. Yeah. I that's really gross and disgusting, okay? And moving on from gross and disgusting to a clever little trick. Wisconsin police warn uh that meth may contain coronavirus, so the police offered to test it for free. A law enforcement agency in a small Wisconsin town is using the fear surrounding the spread of coronavirus to help fight crime. They released a statement saying if you have purchased meth, it may be contaminated with the coronavirus. And they are encouraging people to turn in their meth and have it tested for free. Is that a setup? I mean, you know, uh, what do you mean by a setup? It's essentially... They're trying to get you to come in with your drugs. Yeah, of course, of course. It's uh, it. I don't necessarily think there's an altruistic motive of trying to prevent the spread of coronavirus, but it's. I think it's quite creative. I think it's quite creative. If you're you have this this uh, meth problem in your community, you chose you try to, and you're unable to to reduce the the addiction and, and then all the negative societal impacts. You try to. But it's hard to imagine someone who's a serious meth head, which has manifestations in their health, just dramatic on every way, shape or form, going to be too concerned about coronavirus unless they fully are embracing the hysteria that's coming over the country. Well, you never know. There are moments of clarity. (laughs) So here are some of the comments. Selena R. writes, so if it comes out negative for the virus, do you get it back? LOL. Johnny R. Well, that's one way of getting it off the street. I want to know how many junkies fall for it. And Jessica, oh, yeah, free of charge while charging you for possession. That's, I think, uh, I just don't see it being very successful, but I think it's, it's quite creative. I could just imagine some, some, some law enforcement officers uh, out at a bar after work drinking beer saying, wouldn't this be an interesting approach to addressing our, our, our drug epidemic? But There you go. That could have been the genesis of the plot. Absolutely. But these are, these are very funny and very interesting little criminal twists to life. Yes. Well, Ron, thanks so much for being on our show. 
Uh, where can people find you? Do you, Are you on social media? Where's your law firm? Uh, well, my law firm's in Pasadena, K. McLean, Bidnarski, and Lit. And uh, we have we have a website, and uh, we do... We do civil rights that are affecting people through the criminal justice system and criminal defense. But, you know, uh, feel free to look us up and good luck to us all. (laughs) Yes. And as always, you can find our content on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher and Google Play and on YouTube and get updates and subscribe to our newsletter at TrueCrimeDaily.com. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast reminding you, don't do crime. 